welcome everyone. My name is Sam Adams and I'm the Educational Programs Manager for the Come to Believe Network. And I am joined today by Dr. Tiffany Brannon. Dr. Brannon is a social psychologist, an assistant professor at UCLA, and the director of the Culture and Contact Lab. She has a fascinating, innovative, and very practical line of research focusing on belonging and inclusion within higher education. Her research very much aligns with CTB's focus on belonging, and we are thrilled to have her join us today. So welcome, Dr. Brandon. Thank you for having me. Of course. So before we get into your research, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, what interested you in academia and in social psychology specifically? Yeah, so I'm a first-generation college student, and so one of the things that got me interested in academia was early on as an undergraduate, I had really great exposure to research. I really got a chance to be involved in different types of psychology labs. And I really found myself when I got to join a cultural psychology lab and to participate in a summer research program where I got to spend the summer actually in Dr. Hazel Marcus's lab. And they were just doing research that like I never thought before that, wow, this could be psychology, that psychology could answer questions that I think mattered so much in the world and to identity. Um, and so I just got that spark. And I, I think I, I really just feel like I got lucky. I think the piece of advice that I always try to tell my students is, you know, do as many experiences as you can as an undergrad, even if you have ones that you don't like, that's helpful. And then eventually you'll find something that you do. And I found something that I, that I did and I've stuck with it. And it's, yeah, it's been my joy. <laughs> That's great. So what informed your current research focus on belonging inclusion? This, this goes back years now. So how did this come to be kind of a central focus of your research? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, like I, I identify as a social psychologist and a cultural psychologist. And so like one of the things that I really, it's important to me as a hallmark of cultural psychology is that basically the individual, which psychology fundamentally cares about individuals, is never separable from context. And so for me, as a someone who was interested in psychology early on, but also someone who also understood that my own identities were informing the way I was seeing the world, like I had lots of interest in belonging. Um, and there was lots of exciting work that I remember learning as an undergrad that intervention work for um, ideas to help marginalized students feel more included. But even in that work, I felt like there were ideas that I was getting, for instance, in English lit classes, right, where, um, where some, like, where some novels, they really go deep into really trying to understand identities intersectionally, but they also understand it outside of the lens of stereotypes to, like, what people are proud of about their identity and how their identities are a source of strength. And so, like, for me, I was interested in belonging, and I, I loved the work that was happening in that space, so things like stereotype threat um, that have a long history in social psychology, and I kind of thought, well, why couldn't these worlds be blended, right? So why couldn't the insights that people outside of psychology, by and large, for instance, in the arts, like the fullness that they bring when they think about what it means to be part, especially of marginalized groups, like how could that not be a part of people's sense of belonging? And again, thinking about myself as tied to context, I understood that for myself, being a first-generation college student, being African-American, being female, right, that I understood my identities. This is not just about stereotypes. Um, it wasn't just risk. I valued my identities, and I thought they were a resource. So I really wanted to understand belonging through that lens. 
balance, right, of what can institutions do that don't minimize identity, right? Like, how can we not treat identity, especially for marginalized groups, as it's only about the negative and vulnerabilities and stereotypes, but how do we recognize the fullness of even those negatively stereotyped identities that people have culture, they have um, pride, they have sense of connections to in-group others. There's just wonderful culture and history. And I just wanted to know, like, how, like, how could this not be a part of belonging? And so that's what I sought out to do is to try to take the perspectives, to be honest, that I think about as being deeply rooted in fields outside of psychology. I think these perspectives have long existed in, for instance, in English and in history. And just think about, well, what could happen if those perspectives were merged with, I think, really important insights that were already happening in psychology? Great. And I think that's a really good uh, segue into what I think will be the bulk of this conversation. So you and your various co-authors over the past few years, you've really honed this approach uh, to belonging and inclusion that you refer to as a pride and prejudice approach. So could you tell us a little bit about that? What does that mean? What are the main components of the approach? And maybe most importantly, how is it different from more traditional or other approaches that you've seen? Yeah, so I want to say in talking about this pride and prejudice approach, I I think there's a need, I think, for this perspective, I think, to be more emphasized, especially because we're in February and it's Black History Month and there are so many critiques um, where people are, you know, questioning whether there should be celebrations of Black history, whether there is harm in talking about slavery um, and other situations where um, African-Americans had to endure oppression and prejudice and discrimination. And often, um, like one of the things that those conversations bring to light for me is that, again, this idea of, of fullness, right, that that's only part of the story, right, that there's also a very long history um, of slaves, of African-Americans throughout history um, resisting um, and thriving despite those conditions. And that can be a very empowering narrative, I think, for, for African-Americans to hear, but also people who are not African-Americans to understand, especially as we're in a global pandemic, about how to, um, about how to thrive despite um, challenges. And so the idea behind the Pride and the Prejudice approach is that Often these two things go together, right? That when we think about groups that have a long history of prejudice, that often these groups are not passive, right? Like they just don't endure and just kind of live their lives enduring. And that's the end of the story. In fact, they have agency and they have historically had agency. And usually that agency can show up as pride where people are able to think about an identity that's that unfortunately is maybe deemed inferior that's negatively stereotyped and to actually um, mark it as a source of connection to other people who share that identity which is important for having a sense of strengths and bonds and protection but they can also just redefine like what does it mean to be a part of this group and so the pride and prejudice approach it looks at identity through that more complex lens right of really seeing groups as not just as passive targets but also recognizing that again if we step outside of psychology and we look at what has happened historically that groups that have experienced prejudice um, they have developed tools they've developed responses um, and a lot of those responses tend to be collective for how to deal with and mitigate but like the consequences of that prejudice and discrimination. Um, and so what the approach for psychology means is that it thinks about, okay, well, if we're thinking about institutions, so what can institutions do 
to how people belong, well, one important insight that comes from long traditions of psychology is you have to address prejudice. You have to mitigate it. You have to um, basically affirm that that those values are not part of the institution. But then um, what this approach argues, which is similar to identity, that that's not the totality of it, right? That that part of what it can mean to be part of a marginalized group, whether you're talking about a racial ethnic group or even a a marginalized gender or other type of group, is that yes, it can be wonderful um, to not feel as though you're gonna be seen through the lens of the stereotype, but that approach, if we only look at prejudice and we only address prejudice, it doesn't create opportunities for people to feel like their whole selves could be welcomed in the institution, to feel as though maybe the parts of their gender or their race that is tied to a unique lived perspective or even tied to cultural insights that that necessarily will be welcomed in the space. And so the Pride and Prejudice approach is interested in, well, what happens to inclusion and in turn a variety of really important outcomes that we know are tied to inclusion, such as performance um, and even well-being outcomes. Like what happens when people feel like, okay, I don't have to be worried about seeing through the lens of the stereotype, but I also can feel affirmed that all of these identities that maybe I do value that are an important part of how I understand who I am, that this is also can be valued here and I can be that whole person in the space. And so that's what the approach is about. Great. Uh, And I think that it's important not just to think about this research on its own, but as part of a lineage of research. And you touched on that a little bit, but your research definitely draws upon and and uh, represents a contribution to a growing literature on identity safety. So for people that haven't heard that term before, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how does your research connect to it? Yeah, so yes, it's there's decades of research, of really important research on identity safety. And like the hallmark of identity safety is that if we think about institutions at default, so what's happening at the status quo, that we should not assume that at default, everybody has an equal opportunity to feel included or like they can belong in the setting. And part of this, again, is recognizing how history is still tied to present day um, practices within institutions. And so identity safety is the idea that 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 there needs to be actions taken or whether that's like structuring the practices that happen in the institution to make sure that everybody has a chance to feel a sense of safety in that institution, right? So it's not an idea of, which unfortunately I think um, outside of identity safety, sometimes people might assume the default is neutral, right? That, um, That there's no prejudice in the institution, there's no bias built into the institution. And if we just let everything be, everybody will have an equal chance to to thrive and to do well. But identity safety actually um, takes as a default that no, um, that in fact, if you want um, everybody to thrive, you have to recognize that at default, um, there likely are biases and more limiting ideas for some groups that some groups will have to deal with that others won't have to deal with. And that to even that playing field, you have to make it safe for everybody in that environment. Great. So I want to kind of directly talk about some of your previous research here. So you have a 2015 paper entitled Two Souls, Two Thoughts, Two Self-Schemas. Double consciousness can have positive academic consequences for African-Americans. So In this paper, you explore the positive impact of engagement with African-American culture for African-American students. What did you find about this example of 
I'll term it a pride experience kind of uh, in, in the way that you described the pride and prejudice approach and what were its impact uh, or its effects on important outcomes? Yeah, so for that paper and the title of the paper, so I mentioned before that for my research, I'm a psychologist, but I um, think about some of the ideas, especially the way that I think about identity as ideas that fields outside of psychology have long thought about identity in these more complex ways. So the title comes directly from that, right? It comes from W.E.B. Du Bois, right? His famous idea of double consciousness, where he, he talks about two souls, two thoughts, and so for that um, research, we were really interested in the idea that for African-American students, what it can mean to be African-American could be a really important part of the self, right? Um, it could be valued. It could be a source, importantly, for motivation. So we, um, in that paper, we did a variety. We used actually quite a few methods to try to make aspects of that identity that could be a source of pride um, that was tied to history, of African-American culture salient for African-American students and to see, well, what does that also make salient um, as far as academic consequences or how people are ultimately seeing themselves and how are they seeing what it means to, to thrive in an academic institution. So one of the studies um, that I think is the most directly relevant for this conversation, we looked at, basically, um, we did a priming study where we looked at a course syllabus and we thought about, well, what might be the experience for African-American college students of coming into an academic setting that was, again, drawing from methods from stereotype threat research that was free from, from blatant stereotypes, right? So if, if we um, think about that as being, like, again, some of the best practices for fostering inclusion, which is directly dealing with bias and prejudice, we thought, okay, can we do more? And we did in one of our studies, we directly took stereotype threat mitigation methods to um, really reframe an academic task in a way that has been previously shown to mitigate threat. But we also looked at, well, what would happen if we crossed those methods with a culturally affirming message, right? So if we allowed African-American students to review a course syllabus and that was inclusive of African-American cultural ideas, right? So things like, like seriously engaging with African-American literature, like, um, for instance, um, the novel, The Color Purple, right? And so we created an experiment where um, we created, essentially, we randomly assigned participants to one of two um, conditions where um, we created match syllabi. Um, so everything about the courses were similar, the rigor, um, the demand, but we really just varied whether the course explicitly included um, ideas and practices that would be tied to the identity for African-American students that was negatively stereotyped or one that, that didn't, but it was still um, kind of a more traditional, perhaps English lit class for college students. And again, we, we paired this with stereotype threat methods. And what we found, I think, was really cool. And, and we replicated the finding, which is that above and beyond mitigating threat for African-American students being randomly assigned to the course condition that involved African-American culture subsequently on other tasks was associated with higher performance when we looked at problem solving, like whether these were verbal problem solving tasks or even math persistence tasks. And so for us, that was, I think, really 
like it was, I think it's like for us, I think that was some of our first evidence um, of this, of some evidence of both that both pride and prejudice could matter, right? Because I think at one level you could think, well, if we've mitigated threat and, um, and sometimes I think, um, sometimes people misunderstand the work on stereotype threat. Like they think, oh, like if people have to check something and it makes their identity salient, doesn't that mean identity is a bad thing, right? Like we should do whatever we can um, to take identity off the table. And, and the, but the key insight for stereotype threat is not that identity is a bad thing, it's that the content of identity matters, right? And that if you make the content of identity that salient stereotypes, then yes, it's going to be bad. Um, but that again, like with our broader pride and prejudice framework, you know, identity is not just prejudice, especially for groups that have that long history. And for us in that um, Two Souls, Two Self Schemas paper, like we were able to show that um, above and beyond addressing threat, that if you explicitly include ideas that are tied to people's identity, in fact, the very same identity that's negatively stereotyped, that it can actually um, significantly enhance performance above and beyond just doing the one thing, which is addressing prejudice. Yeah, so I would highly encourage if you're interested in this subject matter, you check out the paper itself. It's a really cool way of seeing how an idea goes into a, becomes a research methodology and how you know you, those ideas are represented in the actual experiment itself. So it's a great, uh, really interesting paper. And another paper I'd like to talk about is a 2018 paper. This paper is called From Backlash to Inclusion for All, Instituting Diversity Efforts to Maximize Benefits Across Group Lines. And so in this paper, what I'd like to focus on is this, you have a framework called an inclusion for all framework that you develop that I think can help inform prejudice reduction efforts on mainstream college campuses. So this is focusing on kind of the prejudice side of the equation. Can you tell us a little bit about the framework and how it, it might be different from other approaches? Yeah, so um, the inclusion for all framework really um, thinks about both theory and application, right? Um, and one of the examples, it's a real world example that we start out with in the paper. And I think it's such a telling example um, and it cuts to your heart. I think if you're a researcher who cares not just about theory, but about actually trying to impact the real world is that sometimes even you know, scientifically validated research insights that even when they're implemented, they can cause backlash. Um, and we, in that paper, we start with an example, I think of maybe kind of the most minimal inclusion effort that an institution can do, which is suggest send an email to basically encourage best practices. And we used an example, a real world example, where that email um, caused lots of controversy and, and it also um, had, it also it sparked reactance, which is something we care a lot about um, in this framework is thinking about, well, what's gonna cause reactance? Because if you think about, well, how do you foster inclusion for marginalized, people from marginalized backgrounds? Well, it's one thing to think about the efforts that do that directly. But if those efforts spark backlash, then that backlash is still viewed um, by those individuals from marginalized backgrounds. And that backlash is a huge cue that goes against inclusion, right? And so if you and so the idea behind inclusion for all is that you have to look at inclusion 
through an intergroup lens, right? That, um, that for marginalized students, there are things that we can do directly to foster a sense of belongingness and inclusion, but also what happens at the intergroup level, how people who are not part of that group react to even the best scientifically valid measures that are going to help marginalized students, their reaction will have implications for marginalized students and, and broadly, they could be staff or faculty for their sense of inclusion in the environment. And so the framework is trying to reconcile that reality, right? That on the ground, that you know, individuals are not gonna exist outside of this intergroup dynamic. And so trying to think through, well, how do we take these insights that come from research that suggest what are the best practices to do to foster inclusion for marginalized students or people from marginalized backgrounds, but how do we institute those in a way that are gonna be least likely to spark reactants um, or backlash from people who aren't part of that group with the idea of recognizing that we want everybody to feel included um, in the environment. So you don't want to shift the environments um, so, that, so that other people don't feel included, but you also don't want groups that, especially that are more dominant in the setting, to signal to um, more marginalized groups that they don't belong because there's opposition to an inclusion effort. Right, so we've talked about the some examples of the pride side of this, some examples of the prejudice side. So I want to bring the two together. So this is a 2021 paper called Pride and Prejudice Pathways to Belonging, Implications for Inclusive Diversity Practices Within Mainstream Institutions. So this is a two-part study. You do two different experiments. So let's start with the first one. Could you tell us a little bit about study one? Like what, what was the methodology? What was your approach? And, and what were your findings? Yeah, so for that one, I was actually really proud of study one in the sense that we um, were able to use qualitative methods. and. I think um, I'm trained as an experimental social psychologist, so I love experiments, I love quantitative data, um, but um, again, in thinking about context and whose perspective is being rec um, recognized, that there, there's deep value to qualitative methods, right? That, and so our study one used qualitative methods and it also used real world context, so publicly available data. And so the paper um, is about inclusion and in, the United States, but it also went internationally. Um, in 2016, there were huge headline-making protests across college campuses around issues of inclusion, where students from a variety of marginalized backgrounds were expressing that they did not feel included on their campus. And so one of the so again, it's kind of interesting thinking about this pride and prejudice point. So again, recognizing that individuals that are the targets of prejudice are often not passive, right? So this is another real world examples of students basically saying we don't feel a sense of inclusion and they weren't passive about it. In fact, they, um, they, they actually reacted. Um, and one of the responses that they did is across 80 different um, institutions, students collectively came up with a list of demands that they actually presented to their administrators about what they wanted to feel included on their campus. And these were publicly posted. And so what we did um, in our study one, but because we had in that paper, we also do, we kind of do like a miniature review, like lit review in the sense that we really try to motivate if we think about different areas of psychology, like why would a pride and prejudice framework be important and how other areas of psychology, if we integrate them together, 
would suggest the importance of this framework. And so the nice thing about our study one in that data is that we were able to test these ideas to see, well, if we look at it from the very perspective of students who are saying, we don't feel included, we want to feel included, to look at, well, what are they literally asking for to feel included? Um, and so we got those demands. Um, and so these were um, written out text-based demands. And so what we did is we coded those demands for, well, what were they asking for? And we, we looked at, well, were they referencing things about addressing prejudice, right? And how often that would happen, right? So, and also were they asking for things that would create opportunities um, to engage with the pride side of their identity? And we found across these demands that it was, that there were high prevalences of requests for both pride measures. So things like having additional um, funding for ethnic studies courses, for creating spaces on campus, that would celebrate the culture and the identity of underrepresented groups. But of course, there was also consistent with our framework, um, like a strong desire to say we need um, there to be consequences for prejudice. We need there to be measures to try to reduce like the, the biases that are happening um, on the campus. Great. So that was study one. And then study two, uh, you took a very different kind of more experimental uh, approach. Could you tell us a little bit about that study? What how did you approach that one and what did you find? Yeah, so study two, we made use of actually a, a pretty nice size um, data set um, where we had uh, multiple institutions represented. And so we looked at in a sample of Latinx and African-American college students, we looked at longitudinally their experiences of pride and prejudice at their college campus and how that impacts institutional belonging and in turn how institutional belonging impacts um, really important life outcomes, right? Such as who graduates within four years, um, self-reported GPA, as well as a variety of well-being outcomes such as depression, missed school days due to health, as well as self-rated health. And what we found in, in that research is we looked at a student's um, experiences of pride. We defined it as them taking classes, for instance, in African-American studies or in a Latinx studies department. We looked at whether they lived in a racial and ethnic um, themed dorm, whether they were part of cultural groups on campuses. So basically we defined pride experiences as um, experiences that were identity relevant, but that gave students an opportunity to engage with the culture and the history and to form a sense of community with um, other in-group members. And we also looked at students' experiences with prejudice on campus, right? So these were um, students, their reports of hearing derogatory remarks about their groups on campus. And so we not only looked at how these two different types of experiences impacted institutional belonging, we also looked at how they impacted students' sense of connection to in-group others, so racial, ethnic in-group others, as well as to um, across intergroup lines, right? So people who are not part of their same racial and ethnic in-group. And then we we found something really interesting there that I think to me is interesting when I follow policy debates, right? Because sometimes in policy debates, um, there's fear expressed about spaces on campus, for instance, that might celebrate the culture and the history of underrepresented groups that sometimes people worry that, oh, they might create enclaves, right? Where students feel mm -hmm. a sense of belonging in those spaces. They don't leave those spaces. They get to be very close only maybe with people on campus that share their racial and in-group membership. 
but but the idea is that you know college is about meeting as many people as possible it's about experience having as many different experiences as possible and some people worry that hey wouldn't that actually you know minimize like the college experience but in our data what we found and it's actually i think consistent with a lot of work that also has maybe through an individual differences um, looked at like kind of racial and ethnic identity and racial and ethnic experiences on campus, we found that actually those pride experiences, they facilitated, of course, um, people feeling closer to their in-group, but the in-group um, closeness in our studies was a pathway to institutional belonging, right? So it wasn't like, oh, it stops there. Like you feel close to your in-group and now you can't connect to the broader campus. And to me, that also makes sense um, when you hear this anecdotally where um, sometimes You'll hear sometimes students who have to contend with prejudice on their campus, they'll say what it means to them to go to a cultural center is that it's the place like they have to maybe deal with bias all this time when they're in their dorm room or when they're in a classroom, but when they can go to a cultural center on campus, it's the one place where they can let their guard down and they don't have to, um, they can, it can be restorative, right? They don't have to worry about having to contend with that prejudice and and then and, and it allows them to go back out there and interact with the broader institution and we found that for um for prejudice experiences that one reason why they harm belonging is that they harm intergroup closeness right and so um and so i think again one of the coolest things to me about that study is that both intergroup and intragroup um, connections matter for intergroup for institutional belonging but but they're differently predicted um, based on pride and prejudice experiences, right? So the takeaway that the, the way that we talk about the research is from an institutional perspective is that you absolutely want to address prejudice because prejudice fundamentally harms intergroup belonging, which in turn can harm institutional belonging. But also that that's only one pathway or one piece of the puzzle that another pathway towards um, fostering inclusion is also through creating these opportunities for students to interact with parts of their identity that, that are positive, that can be tied to history, and that are tied to pride, and that that can also be a pathway to belonging. Great. So I think that's a, a nice segue to the next question. So that, that's an example of an implication where you're thinking about, based on your research, you know, what should, say, institutions be thinking about? So what do you think, in addition to kind of this, the, the basic you have to accommodate and think about both these, you know, cultivating pride and also combating prejudice. What are some other implications that you think higher education, especially what in your research you talk about mainstream institutions, what, what should they be thinking about as they think about belonging and inclusion? Yeah, so I, I think I think it's really important to listen to students, which I think I, I really like that that's modeled um, in the paper that we were just talking about, that um, our study one literally gives voice to what we're students saying. And I think that um, institutions can, like there can be great value to listen because students, like they have a unique perspective about like what it could, what would be important for feeling included. And in fact, I think the more the institutions listen to students, um, the less labor that students unfortunately have to do to, to make their campuses more inclusive, right? And so what I, I, you know, when I talk about pride and this idea that um, groups that have a long history 
of experiencing prejudice that they, they they're not passive that they've created strategies to cope to foster resilience to um, foster a sense of, of intergroup connections but some of that process um, can be happening too with college students but institutions can actually take away some of that labor right because it's it is labor to when you're part of a marginalized group to have to figure out well how do i cope with oppression and discrimination um, and, the, and that burden, especially when we think about um, students on college campus, they shouldn't bear that burden because time is zero sum, right? And so um, it's time away from their academics. So I think the most important insight that I would say for institutions is to listen like to the voices, I think, of students, but also to really take seriously this idea of, I, I think, identity safety and who's allowed to be um, and to thrive in that environment and to recognize that if you're only addressing prejudice, that that might signal, okay, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, maybe blatant oppression, but that's still not the same as affirming to people that all of you is welcomed here and all of your talents. And this is really important for creativity, right? Like the more that people can bring um, insights and, and this can, I think, this can be really broad, right? Because sometimes the identities that people may not feel welcome to bring um, in an institution, it may not be an identity like race, ethnicity, it could be an identity, like, you know, such as like, like, it could be like a rural um, identity. So if they're from a rural place, it could be a social class identity. It's all that matters is that it's something that's valued to them. And I think the more that institutions think about how do you help everybody feel like all of them can belong here, I think you really can foster inclusion where everybody can win, right? So I think it's going to, like, it's helpful for marginalized students, but I think it's, it's also really helpful for students from more dominant group backgrounds, because it's, I think it's important for people to feel like they can bring all the parts of themselves that they value, like, to their problem solving, um, to their institution. So, and I think one thing that I, I would should note is just that the reason why I think there are such uh, clear implications of your research is that you take that into account when you're doing the, when you're constructing these experiments. Like it's very clear where the implications are because it's very practical. And so I really appreciate that as a practitioner, thinking about what these institutions might look like, the research that really in, directly informs that. You don't have to draw kind of three to four steps in between. The last thing I'll say just on the topic of, of research, so you've obviously done a lot of work in the last few years on this. What are some future areas of research in this domain, either that you're working on now or that you would like to see uh, that can further help institutions improve belonging and inclusion? Yeah, so the work that I'm the most interested in now is thinking about how these ideas um, work together. So for instance, in the Pride and Prejudice work, um, we look at them as two different pathways, but often, you know, in individuals are contending with both pride and prejudice, or even institutions that have affirmed maybe commitments to pride, because, and I think the world is recognizing this, that fostering inclusion, it's an ongoing thing. It's not like, oh, we've checked, we've solved it. And so I'm interested in kind of that more long-term um, understanding how both pride experiences and prejudice experiences interact and work with each other and what institutions can do to buffer. So instead of just being reactive to being proactive, I prejudice where there could be um, a sense of sense, felt sense of trust that 
that the incident will be addressed um, and that and that the institution still affirms that commitment to pride. Great. Uh, so that that concludes the interview. I'm so thankful for your time. And I know everybody, all of our listeners will also appreciate this. Uh, you can also hear from Dr. Brandon at our panel, uh, February 24th, 2022. Uh, that'll also be recorded and, and available in audio form as well. So thank you, Dr. Brandon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.